Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew 16, and reading verses uh, 13 to 16. Matthew 16. We read now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I wonder, have you ever had an experience where you knew great spiritual blessing which was quickly followed by a great satanic buffeting. You were enjoying very close communion with the Lord. You were walking faithfully with him. You were walking fervently with him. Uh, And then you thought something. You said something. You did something that seemed to cast a shadow over the whole experience. It seemed to ruin everything. Well, today we're continuing our studies in the life of Peter and how he goes from what we might call being a solid rock to a stumbling block in an incredibly short space of time. So we're going to look at these verses under two headings, the great revelation and then the grave rebuke. First, you have the great revelation, verses 13 to 20, where Matthew focuses on the great revelation that Peter received. In verses 13 and 14, we see the public opinion concerning Jesus. Matthew begins by giving us the location in verse 13. We read that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. That was a town in the far north of Galilee, about 25 miles from from the Sea of Galilee. It was on the slope of Mount Hermon. It was a thoroughly pagan environment with a shrine dedicated to the Greek god Pan. The majority of those living in this area were Gentiles, they were non-Jews. And upon coming to this location, Jesus asks the disciples a question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus has been preaching and performing miracles for for a fairly lengthy period of time, and he now asks his inner circle of followers, what are people saying about this? What are people thinking of this? What are people making of me? And the disciples proceed to provide a number of opinions that people are expressing concerning Jesus. Verse 14, some were saying that he was John the Baptist. Others were saying that he was Elijah. Others were saying that he was Jeremiah. And still others were saying that he was one of the prophets. It's clear from what the people were saying that they regarded Jesus as being a great figure. They saw him as being someone who had been sent by God, someone who was speaking for God. They, they give him a very elevated position. But we move from the public opinion to the personal confession in verses 15 and 16. Having heard the various responses concerning what the people are saying, Jesus now asks the disciples a further question. Look at verse 15. He looks them in the eye and he literally says, But you... Who do you say that I am? 
Jesus' concern lies not so much with what the crowds in general are thinking and saying about him. His concern lies with what his inner circle are thinking and saying about him. And it's at that point that Peter speaks, verse 16. If you remember two weeks ago, I compared Peter with a girl I was in school with who was always the first to put up her hand to ask a question or answer a question. She could, she could never keep quiet. And that's Peter. He can, he can never keep quiet. And here we find Peter as quick to answer as ever, now saying to Jesus, you are the Christ. He sees Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the Anointed One. He sees Jesus as the long-awaited Anointed King, whom God had appointed to deliver his people and establish his rule over the nations. He sees Jesus as the bringer of blessing. He sees Jesus as the one whom God had said would crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3. You are the Christ, Peter says. You are the great deliverer. You are the saviour who was promised. But he goes even further. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter realises that Jesus is no mere human whom God has anointed and appointed, Peter realises that Jesus is uniquely related to the one true God, the living God. And he says that, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We move from the personal confession to the profound declaration in verses 17 to 20. Jesus now speaks... And he begins with a blessing in verse 17. He addresses Peter as Simon Bar-Jonah or Simon son of Jonah. And he tells Peter that he is blessed. He is under the, the benediction of God. He is under the smile of God. And he says, you are blessed Simon Bar-Jonah because flesh and blood, human ration and human reason haven't revealed this to you. No, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. You are a blessed man. And Jesus then speaks about building. Verse 18, he continues speaking to Peter and he says, you are Peter. Now, if you remember again, I'm asking you to do a lot of memory work today. But if you remember a month or two ago, we looked at John chapter 1. And when Jesus called Peter, he said to him, you are going to be called Peter from now on. And that name Peter, that nickname meant rock. And now Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, you are rock man. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now that is a statement that many people have debated over the years. And without going into all the details, Jesus is saying to Peter that Peter and the confession that he has just given are going to be the rock, the foundation upon which his church will be built, his assembly of saved people. And Jesus makes a marvellous promise after saying this. And you know, this is maybe my favourite promise in the New Testament This is the promise I've held on to over the last two years. This is the promise when Satan tempts me to despair. Jesus says to Peter, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus pictures his church. He pictures the community, the assembly of his people being positioned outside the very gates of hell, the fortress of demonic powers, And Jesus says, 
whoever comes out of those gates and whatever they might do to his church and however long that assault, that opposition might last, Jesus says, the church that I am building will stand. That's an amazing promise. The church that Jesus is building will stand. The church Kufaria is building will not stand. And the, the physical structure that the high three hope to build will not stand forever. We hope it will stand as long as we're alive and for centuries afterward. But the church that Jesus is building will stand. And having spoken about building, Jesus speaks about binding. Verse 19, he says that he is going to give Peter the keys of the kingdom. The the keys that grant access into God's saving rule. And he says that whatever Peter binds or closes on earth will be bound or closed in heaven. And he then says that whatever Peter looses or opens on earth will be loosed or opened in heaven. What Jesus is saying is that when Peter proclaims the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that message will open the door to God's kingdom to anyone and everyone who believes it. And that same message will close the door to God's kingdom to anyone and everyone who rejects it. Peter has been given authority by Jesus to say, believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And the door to heaven, the door to eternal life is open to you. But reject the message that Jesus is the Christ. Reject the message that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And that door to eternal life, that door to the kingdom of God will be closed to you. And it's at this point that Jesus puts a ban on the disciples. Look at verse 20. He gives them a strict charge to tell no one that he is the Christ. And we think, wait, wait, wait a minute. What's all that about? Peter is, Peter's been given the keys of the kingdom. And now Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Well, if you remember, Jesus says to the disciples at the very end of Matthew's gospel, go to the world, go to the nations, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. But for now, there is a lot of things the disciples don't really understand. They've got a lot of misconceptions. They've got a lot of misunderstandings, as we'll see in a few minutes. And Jesus is saying, I want you to listen to me for the time being. I want you to learn from me for the time being. Don't go out preaching just yet when you don't know it all. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been shown who Jesus is. We've been shown who Jesus is. Jesus asks the disciples who the people are saying that he is, and they say, the people are saying that you're a prophet. You're a man who has been sent by God and is speaking for God. And then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are blessed because flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And you know, friends, that is so important for us to hear today. I've told you this story before about the man who thought he had met Karl Barth's barber. Uh, this man was on a bus in Basel and he sat down next to Karl Barth and, 
and they struck up a conversation. And, and Karl Barth said to the man, what would you like to see? What would you like to do when you're in Basel? And this man said, I would love to meet Karl Barth, that great famous theologian. I would do anything to meet him. Do you know him? And Karl Barth said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. I give him a shave every morning. And the man got off the bus, muttering and marvelling to himself, I met Karl Barth's barber today. This man had a high view of the man whom he thought was Karl Barth's barber. The problem was his view didn't go high enough, it didn't go far enough. And that can be the case when it comes to how people view Jesus. They'll see him as a religious reformer. They'll see him as a good teacher. They'll see him as an inspirational leader. They'll see him as a sympathetic healer. Uh, And while all these things are true, like the people in Jesus' own day, their view of Jesus doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go high enough. In 1952, C.S. Lewis published his book, Mere Christianity, where he writes, it's a very famous quote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so friends, I want to ask the question of every person who's here today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Some of you have been coming to church for quite a short space of time and and some of you have been coming for many years, many decades. Who do you say that Jesus is? Can you say with Peter, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, the great revelation. But we move from the great revelation to the grave rebuke, verses 21 to 23. And now Matthew focuses on the grave rebuke that Peter received. In verse 21, we hear Jesus' word of anticipation. Matthew tells us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples what would happen to him. Peter has just confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus says that as the Christ, as the Son of the living God, he must go to Jerusalem. And he says that as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he must go to Jerusalem where he will suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. He will not be embraced upon entry to Jerusalem. Instead, those in Jerusalem, the religious establishment, will make it their aim to cause him as much suffering as they possibly can. And he goes further and he tells them that as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he must be killed. At that point, he doesn't say when he will be killed or how he'll be killed or why he'll be killed. He simply says that the the continued opposition of the religious establishment will culminate in his being put to death. And he concludes by telling them that he will be raised on the third day. He doesn't say that he will raise himself. Instead, he says, I will be raised. Meaning he will be raised by the power of God. 
he will be vindicated by his heavenly Father. When all hope seems to be lost, when it seems that he's just been placed in the grave and and will be forgotten about and maybe memorialised by some of his closest friends, he says, then, at the point when all hope seems to be lost, I will be raised by my Father. Now, before going further, it's interesting to note that Jesus uses the word must in verse 21. Did you, did you notice that word must? Paul Tripp calls this the must of God's sovereignty. Everything that Jesus will do and everything that will happen to Jesus will be in accord with the predetermined plan and purpose of God. Every step that Jesus makes on that painful road to Jerusalem and the religious establishment, and death in the grave, every step that he takes will be a step taken with the words, your will be done, on his lips. But we move from Jesus' anticipation to his admonition in verses 22 and 23. Having heard the words of Jesus, Peter once again speaks... And this time he delivers a word of rebuke. Look at verse 22. We read that Peter took him aside. The body language reflects a a superior attitude. I wouldn't get away with this in PDG times now, but imagine if I took Roddy or Malcolm or Sam aside and, and put my arm around them and said, I want a word with you. That's the language we've got here. Peter putting his arm around Jesus, very superior attitude, and says, want a quick word with you. And we read that Peter then rebuked Jesus. Now back in Luke chapter 5, we read that Peter had said to Jesus, depart from me because I am a sinful man. He felt too unworthy. He felt too unclean. He felt too unqualified to be in the presence of Jesus. But now Peter feels that he is more than qualified to rebuke Jesus. And we then hear what Peter said to Jesus Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Look at the way he addresses Jesus as Lord. And in the very same breath, he says, never. You think, who does he think he is? Never, Lord. Peter believes Jesus to be the Christ, believes him to be the Son of God, but the concept of the Christ, the Son of God, suffering, being killed, well, that is too much for Peter. And he says, I will not allow it. In fact, the word he actually uses is, may God have mercy on you for saying this. He's not happy. And as he hears Peter's word of rebuke, Jesus responds by Delivering a word of rebuke of his own. Look at verse 23. Jesus now turns to Peter. And as he turns toward Peter. He he tells him to get behind him. Go away. And he addresses Peter as Satan. In Matthew chapter 4. Satan the devil had tried to get Jesus to abandon the road to the cross. The path of suffering in Jerusalem. And as Jesus hears Peter now saying, this shall never happen to you, he sees that this very close friend, this very close follower, is now functioning as the mouthpiece of Satan. And he goes further and he tells Peter that he is a hindrance, he is a stumbling block to him. What a remarkable turnaround. Isn't it amazing? 
That, that just a few moments ago, Jesus is saying, you are Peter, you are the solid rock, and on you and on your confession, I will build my church. And now Jesus is saying, you are not a solid rock, you are a stumbling block, you are a hindrance when it comes to me seeking to build my church. And he closes by telling Peter that he's not setting his mind on the things of men, on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter's mindset isn't being framed by God's perspective and God's priorities. His mindset has been framed by human perspectives and human priorities. And that has led him to the place of saying, this shall never happen to you. When Jesus has said, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed and I must be raised, Peter says, no, 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 that that can't happen to you. Peter has scaled the great heights in this chapter and then he finds himself being severely admonished, rebuked by Jesus. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we're being shown what Jesus came to do. What Jesus came to do. Jesus has received Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's gone on to explicitly and emphatically state that he must suffer and he must be killed in Jerusalem. He will say the same thing in Matthew 17 and again in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus sees himself as the one who will suffer and die in the place of his people as their sacrifice, as their substitute. That is how he is going to save his people from their sins, as the angel said back in Matthew chapter 1. And the moment that Peter rebukes him for saying this, Jesus delivers the harshest rebuke that we ever hear coming from his lips. As far as Jesus is concerned, he has come to die. And nothing and no one will distract or divert him from that path. And that is so important, friends, for us to hear today. The truth of Jesus' death as a sacrifice, a substitute for his people, is a truth that many resent, many reject, many ridicule. And it's a truth that can be resented and rejected and ridiculed even by those claiming to be Christians. In 2015, Scott McKenna, the then minister of Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church made the following announcement to his congregation. Jesus did not die for our sins. That is ghastly theology. Don't go there. That's been said in pulpits. Jesus did not die for our sins. It's ghastly theology. But as far as Jesus is concerned, his sin-bearing, sin-atoning death on the cross lies at the very heart of what he came to do. He is the Christ who came to die. He is the Son of God who came to die. In his commentary on these verses, J.C. Ryle writes, There is no doctrine of Scripture so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. The truth is that our Lord would have us regard the crucifixion as the central truth of Christianity. Right use of his vicarious death and the benefits resulting from it lie at the very foundation of biblical religion. 
never let us forget this. On matters of church government, the form of worship, men may differ from us and yet reach heaven in safety. On the matter of Christ's atoning death as the way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many other points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. Here let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our hopes must be Christ died for us. Give up that doctrine and we have no solid hope at all. And that is why Jesus then speaks with such force, such ferocity, when Peter, his closest friend, says, This shall never happen to you. Today, Jesus wants us to see the absolute necessity of his death. He wants us to see it as lying at the very heart of the gospel message. He wants us to see it as being essential and indispensable when it comes to our standing before God, our salvation. We can stand before God without many things. On the day of judgment, friends, we can stand before God without a free church hat. On the day of judgment, we can stand before God without wearing a a Sunday suit. On the day of judgment, we can stand before God without psalms, without hymns, without keyboards, without guitars, without presenters. On the day of judgment, we can stand before God with a Christian family or without a Christian family. But we cannot stand before God without a crucified Jesus. There is no hope without it. And so the question that I leave you with is, have you embraced this Jesus and his death? Have you embraced this Jesus and his cross? Friends, is this what you boast in? Is this what you exalt in? Are you able to say today with Charles Spurgeon, I will sooner have my tongue cut out than cease to speak of the precious blood of Christ. What a statement. I will sooner have my tongue cut out than than cease to speak of the precious blood of Christ. Who is Jesus? The Christ, the Son of the living God. And what has Jesus come to do? He has come to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and on the third day be raised for his people. And what do we say in response? Hallelujah. What a saviour.